Let's turn our attention to God's word, Esther chapter 8. This is kind of, this is almost the conclusion of this beautiful book. Uh, it's only 10 chapters long. I encourage you to read it later today, uh, and it is, it is going to bless your life. It's a beautiful story of God's faithfulness. Uh, Esther chapter 8, we're going to be reading verses 5 through uh, 8, and uh, together we hear the word of the Lord. Esther's response to uh, the king. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my People, How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and, they have, and have impaled him on the pole that he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you. And seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his, with his ring can be revoked. This is God's word offered to us in its reading and its hearing. Together we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty. Uh, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Gracious God, what a gift it is to gather around your word. To hear this extraordinary story of your faithfulness. Uh, even in a foreign land, even in a season of exile, you were faithful. And you made a way where there otherwise seemed like there would be no way. Lord, you are good and we thank you for that faithfulness. So we ask, oh God, that you would be with us in this time as we gather around your word, that you would open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word our hearts, that we would feel its power. Then I ask, O oh God, that in response, we, your servants, would open our hands, that we would offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself confronted with a choice and you were in a circumstance that you were clear was not of your own creating? And you had to make a choice that, 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 that you couldn't really trace the, the origin of this moment. You, you knew that many things had taken place, maybe days before, weeks before, or even years before. And, and you find yourself in the moment confronted with a clear and challenging choice. Sometimes you can name the origin, though. For me recently, I was in a debate with a friend of mine, and the origin of that was Michael Jordan and his retirement. You see, I, I was challenged by a friend, why do you like the Rockets? Are you just a homer? Is it because it's the hometown? I was like, no, I fell in love with the Rockets in my teenage years as we went back-to-back -back chips, right? Amen. And, uh, and, and I fell in love with the team. He said, you can't even name anyone on that team. What are you talking about? I was like, what are you talking about? Sam Cassell, Mario Ellie, Robert Ori, Otis Thorpe, Hakeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler, and of course, Vernon Maxwell. 
right? Like, like I, I, and then he's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. So you know the team. And then here it came. Are you ready? Of course, of course you like the Rockets, but they wouldn't have won either championship if Michael Jordan hadn't retired. How many times have we heard that garbage that is such absolute nonsense. It's the most illogical. I mean, if you actually knew about the 90s, you knew that the Rockets owned the Bulls. We absolutely dominated them. They had no answer for Hakeem. And let's just say Vernon Maxwell was clamps on Michael Jordan, all right? There was no one that could guard Jordan like Maxwell. And so to say that is just foolishness. I mean, to be quite honest, the team that had our, our number was the Supersonics. And uh, they got knocked out the round before when we went on our 1994 championship run. So, so whenever we think about this, I mean, we really are clear that even if Jordan would have been in the league, we would have faced them in the finals and swept them like we swept Shaq, right? Come on, baby. This was a clear, a clear and obvious outcome. We were going to win in 94 and we were going to win in 95. But I'm sitting here in this argument and 2022 with a friend, and it all roots back to a decision one individual made in 1993 when Jordan announced his retirement. All right, that's like just a mess. But how many more situations can you identify in your life that are so much more serious and so much more pressing where if you actually analyzed how did I get myself here? Why am I facing this choice today? You could begin winding back through history. And sometimes you might not ever even know the origin. I oftentimes wonder if Esther and Mordecai ever found themselves in these critical moments of history that are forever recorded, that, that, that provide the means and the mechanisms through which the world would be blessed. More on that in a second. And they had no clue how they got there. Well, the book of Esther gives us some insight into how they got there, and it deals with, uh, with a spat between a king and a queen, and the king is really the worst king that you could possibly imagine. Okay, this is King Xerxes, and every time you, you, you analyze his leadership, you say, and this is what not to do as a leader. So to begin with, he calls for his kingdom to enter in. By the way, it's like the kingdom. It's, it's the most powerful kingdom of the world. He has uh, united uh, 120, I believe it is, provinces underneath his leadership, all through conquering and enslavement and exile and, and dominion and domination. And so whenever you look at his leadership, it's already in question. But he decides, I need to throw a party to me. And uh, it's going to be a 180-day party. You might be able to party. I might have heard some like stories about your capacity for partying here in this community. Can you imagine a 180-day party nonstop? And then when you get to the end of the 180-day party, do you know what King Xerxes said? I want seven more days. Like, like he literally gets to the end of 180 and says, add seven more on top. 
because I didn't get enough partying. <laughs> and so he's there in the midst of his seven days, and, and his queen, Queen Vashti, decides, well, run it back for me too. I want seven more as well. So King Xerxes says, we're going to have seven days of party on top of the 180 for the dudes. And Queen Vashti says, we're going to have seven days for the ladies. And so they have their own parties. Remember I said Xerxes was an idiot. So, um, so King Xerxes then, in the midst of the seven-day after-party party, he then sends a message to his queen and says, Queen, my party would be so much better if you were at my party. You should come to my party. Well, Queen Vashti said, I had a ladies' party. Why do I want to go to your party? And you know what she tells her king? No. Now, mind you, we're 186 days into a party. So I'm not sure anybody's thinking clearly at this moment in time. And she definitely wasn't because she just told the most powerful person in the entire world, no, to a simple request of her presence. But then he decides to be an even bigger idiot. And he says, oh, no, she didn't. She did not tell me, no, do you know who I am? I am Xerxes. So he gathers together his small council. And this small council has also been 186 days into a party. So I'm sure everybody was very, very clear-headed, wise, and thoughtful. And they assessed the situation. And here's what they determined. A group of dudes, 186 days into a party. If the queen can tell the king no, then what does this mean for our wives? If, he sa if she says no to him, all of our wives are going to say no to us, and we have to squash this. So they come together, and they decide we are going to remove Queen Vashti from the position of queen. Now she's just Vashti, not Queen Vashti. And in addition to that, we need someone new to carry that title of queen. We are going to have all the provinces that King Xerxes rules send in the most beautiful women that they could find. And they are going to enter into his harem. And then he's going to select from all of these women who will now be queen. Are y'all following me? The, like, this is just layer after layer of bad decision after bad decision after bad decision and, and I can't fathom how Esther arrives into the midst of this story, to the, to, the, to the parts of the story that you and I might be more familiar with, wondering, how did I get here? Why me? Why now? Who else is coming? Is there someone else on their way? Surely, certainly, someone else can do this. It isn't me. But the answer is, no one's coming. It is you. And so you have this scene unfold, and I oftentimes wonder if we were to analyze when we get in those critical situations, a lot of times we find ourselves there by no cause of our own, by, by nothing that we chose to do, but God then uses our choices, our faithfulness, and our patience to bear fruit for his kingdom along the way so let's look at now we get to esther and mordecai how they enter into the story 
There are four different elements of of, uh, faithfulness in small decisions that position Esther and Mordecai to play significant roles in in really the the history of the world. And and we're going to walk through them. They're all in chapter 2. If you still have your Bibles, you're going to follow along uh, with us there. We'll drop some words on the screen as well. But first, who is Mordecai and who is Esther? It comes in chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So you have Mordecai and Esther, Hadassah, who are Jews in exile. And while they're in exile... Uh, Esther's mother and father are both now dead, and Mordecai has a decision here. I have a family member, not, 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 a, not a mom or dad or a brother or sister, a cousin, a cousin who's now orphaned. What is the proper response? Do I care for her? Do I sponsor her? Do I welcome her in my home as As an orphan, which she is, and it says, no, he welcomed her into his family as a daughter. He adopted her. And in that space and time, she she was the, the most vulnerable that you can imagine, an exiled, orphan, young, beautiful woman. And he says, you are my daughter. Choice number one from Mordecai. Number two. It happens in both verse 10 and verse 20 in Esther chapter 2. We're just going to read verse 10 uh, because it's the same exact thing twice. But in verse 10, it says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. She, I'm, I'm guessing she had no clue why. Or if she did, she didn't understand the full ramifications of that why. I also don't don't believe that Mordecai could have fully predicted how important that particular detail being left out would have been as the story unfolds. But yet, Mordecai, her adopted father, instructs her not to say that she's a Jew, that she's an Israelite, and instead to withhold that. And twice over, when opportunities arise for her to share it, she does not as a faithful response to her father's instruction. So then, uh, along the way, Esther has now been welcomed in to the harem of King Xerxes. Remember, beautiful young women from all across the land. Esther is one that is now in his harem. And, and what, what Xerxes did is he said, all right, you get everything you want. You could have whatever you like. And in, and in this plan uh, of uh, of how he's going to select a queen, uh, they're going to rotate through an interaction with Xerxes, and 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 they can prepare themselves for that with whatever perfumes, whatever clothing, whatever whatever hair uh, hairdressing, however they want to be styled, they're going to get to prepare for it, and then he's going to choose a queen. So then you get to the, this this third choice, and Esther. Uh, with beautiful wisdom, I believe, in verse 15 says, When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, 
suggested, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She could have done whatever she wanted, but then in that moment, she had a stroke of genius. I'm going to choose only what someone who actually knows the the preferences and the desires of the one I'm attempting uh, to attract. I'm going to choose only what they choose. Now, you have Esther beginning to gain favor. She is now named queen because Xerxes finds her so beautiful. And then, uh, then there's this threat on Xerxes' life that comes later in chapter 2. So here's what happens. There's two guards that are set up outside of Xerxes' room. Right, So think, think like the movies, like Game of Thrones or Last Kingdom or whatever you got, right? Uh, I, I said movies and then I went to shows. Okay, so, so, so think like you got the king and you got a couple of guards on the outside. And these two guards are talking in the courtyard near where Mordecai is. And they're talking about their desire to kill the king. And their plan to kill the king because they have access to kill the king. So what does Mordecai do? Mordecai could just be like, well, he's pretty bad at kinging. He's like the worst king that's ever kinged, so he could die. Or he could try to report it himself, or he could tell Esther. So here's what he does in verse uh, 22. But Esther, uh, but Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. All right, so Mordecai had a choice. Esther had a choice. Esther had another choice. Mordecai had to decide how or if or to whom he was going to report this. Esther then had to decide what she was going to do with this information. She could have just dropped it, right? He's King Xerxes. Uh, he, He oppresses my people. He's keeping us in exile. She could have let him die. And then she chooses to tell him she could have taken credit. I mean, not bad for a queen, right? To take credit for saving his life. But instead, she chooses to give credit to Mordecai. Credit where credit is due. And in that moment, just, just, there's this beautiful linchpin in the story that is put in place that holds everything together. And without that nugget, that choice everything begins to crumble. You see, it's these small things, these small choices, and large as well. This large choice of do I adopt, do I not? This large choice of how do I report it or not? These small choices of of whether or not she shares who she is or how she presents herself. And all these small choices add up. And now King Xerxes has favor for both Esther and for Mordecai. So as the story continues, there's this evil dude that comes into play. His name is Haman, all right? We read about him in in chapter eight. There's a lot that goes on in the in-between. So Haman, he hates the Jews, absolutely despises the Jews, wants to annihilate the Jews, conspires and succeeds in Uh, offering an edict that will go out throughout all of the land to all of the provinces, allowing for all of the Jews to be killed. 
It wasn't enough that we conquered them. It wasn't enough that we took their land. It wasn't enough that we held their leaders in exile. Now we are going to annihilate, kill every single Jew. So Mordecai gets word of that. And, and by the way, like now, now you can begin to see how like these choices are adding up and having like generational uh, consequences, may I even say eternal consequences, because if in this moment uh, Haman would have been successful and all the Jews would have been annihilated, there's some guy named Jesus that would have never been born to a Jew from the house of David to save you and to save me. So here we have in chapter 4 and continuing on, this, this, this beautiful series of choices that, uh, that Esther is faced with. And the way in which she walks through this, I want to, to highlight because I believe that it exemplifies both patience and faithfulness uh, in extraordinary measure. So what we have is uh, Mordecai hears of this call for Haman to annihilate all the Jews and uh, at the end of that, uh, at the end of that, uh, that awareness, he then goes to Esther and tells her what's happening. So in Esther chapter four, verse uh, verse sixteen, you hear how this is uh, how this continues. So Esther tells Mordecai, "Go gather together all the Jews who were in Susa. That's the region right around where they were, and fast for me. Do not eat." Or drink for three days, night or day, and I, I and my attendants will fast just as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. All right. So you just heard that all of your lineage, all of your heritage, all of your people are going to die. The edict has already been sent out. For their annihilation. It seems a little more urgent. Maybe a little more immediate. Maybe like you should snap to and make that risk like now. But Esther compliments faithfulness and patience together in her response. What does she do? She says, I'm going to call a fast for all the Jews. Now, I know what it looks like whenever I call a fast here at Covenant, whenever I invite you into a fast, like all of your eyes roll in the back of your head and you're like, oh, fasting. Can you just make it from chocolate? I might be able to make it for a day, right? Like, like, like fasting is, is like a dirty word in, in the contemporary American Christian church, something that needs to like be stripped away and annihilated. But, but like when we, when we fast today, like if we call a fast that like is like, uh, from uh, we do it just from sun up to sundown, and we're like waking up at five with like four waffles, three pancakes, and like five eggs, and we're like, I gotta make it through the day. Let me blow it out real big, and then and then, then we then then we have we still have our beverages over the course of the day. You're like, oh well, like water and coffee, right? Water or Dr Pepper, like please, can I have something along the day? And then like as soon as the sun goes down, like it's still like sunset, it's still light outside, and you already have a T bone on your plate waiting to eat. That's how we fast in contemporary America. Gross, right? So now, 
we have what, what, what Esther is calling, and Esther says, night and day, nothing. You and me and all of our people, all Jews everywhere, we're going to fast, and we're going to seek the Lord's favor in this fast, and you and I are fasting together for a conversation that will come to, to happen. And we're going to trust in the Lord in it, and we're going to be patient knowing that God's hand is upon this and calling his will to be done in our midst. And so they fast. And then here's what, here's what Esther does at just the right moment. On the third day, something beautiful about the third day, right? On the third day of this fast, Esther put on, in chapter 5, verse 1, put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the, of the palace in front of the king's hall, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. She did something incredibly bold and incredibly illegal and something that should have gotten her killed. She went where she did not belong, where she had no authority to be, and she risked her life just to catch the king's attention. She put on her royal garb and stood in his presence, hoping and praying that she would live and that he would have favor on her. And all of the choices that had been made up until that point provided the opportunity for the king to see her and acknowledge her and then to offer an invitation. So in uh, chapter 5, verse 4, the king sees her and he says, he says, remember I said he's a really bad king? He says, what do you want? I'll bless you. I'll give you anything you want. You're so beautiful. You're my queen. Up to half my kingdom, you could have it. <laughs> it's great. It's very intelligent. Uh, up to half my kingdom is yours. And so in verse four, here's what she says. Oh, by the way, what would you say before we get to verse four? Uh, all the Jews are about to be annihilated. You just waited three days until the third day, fasting your people for favor for this very moment. You prayed that you would be acknowledged and not killed. And then in that moment, he acknowledges you and says, I'm gonna give you whatever you want. Anyone? What would you ask for? Some, don't kill the Jews. Like that, that would seem like the obvious answer. Don't kill the Jews. But instead of saying don't kill the Jews, chapter five, verse four, here's what she says. If it pleases the king, replied Esther. Let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. She says, come to a feast. I've prepared it for you. I want you to bring your number one advisor, who's also trying to kill me and my people, and I want you to bring him and the two of you, I want to come to a party. We, we've seen how parties work in Xerxes' world. So Esther's maybe heard of this as well. Uh, she then, before anything else takes place, provides plenty of wine because after a couple glasses of wine or more, maybe King Xerxes is more amenable. And so he comes, he comes to dinner, he drinks some wine, and then uh, the moment comes uh, where in verse eight, it says, if the king, uh, the king looks at her and says, hey, what, is, what do you want? Remember, I told you I'd give you whatever you want and you're waiting for it. He came to dinner, you're waiting for it and she doesn't say, uh, save the Jews. Instead, in verse 8, she says, if the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow 
to another banquet that I'm going to prepare for him. At this point, if you're reading the text, you're like, Esther, you're missing your opportunity. Like seriously, start at Esther 1-1 this afternoon, read through, get to this moment, and say to yourself, ah! But that's not what she does. She's being patient and faithful and trusting in the Lord. And you know what the Lord, the Lord has this beautiful thing that, 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 that she is giving space for the Lord to do that, that, that she didn't know about, but that happens in the meantime. Haman then decides, I hate this Mordecai guy. I want him dead. I want him put on a pole. I want his head on a spike. I want him to die. And, and, and so he starts trying to plot to make that happen. And he's going to do it the very next morning before the banquet that night. And you know what happens? Xerxes that night can't sleep. The, the, the word of God doesn't, doesn't give this to us. It doesn't say that the Lord kept him up that night. But man, I tell you what. In this beautiful narrative of God's faithfulness and, their, and Mordecai and Esther's faithfulness, I just got to believe that, that Xerxes just couldn't sleep that night, that the Lord had something on his mind. And you know what he does? He says, I am missing something. All along this process, I have, I have left something hanging. What is it? And he's puzzling over it. And he calls for the book of the record. And he turns to the page where his life was saved from those two dudes that were going to kill him. And he sees that it was Mordecai that did that. And he turns to his advisors and he says, advisors, how did I reward and bless Mordecai? Mordecai, Esther's adopted father. Mordecai, the one who, who reported to save his life. Mordecai, the one who Haman was going to kill the very next morning. How did I reward him? How did I reward him? And the advisor said, you didn't. You missed this king. And the next morning, instead of Mordecai being killed by Haman, he is celebrated in the kingdom as someone who is loyal and saved the king. If Esther wasn't patient and faithful like that, that would be a piece of the story that we would not be able to celebrate. And God used it for his glory as Mordecai is later lifted into a place of authority so that the Jews might be reestablished historically in Israel. And then finally, chapter 7, verse 3. She has another banquet. There's more wine. And while the king is drinking the wine, the king turns to her and says, what about this request? I told you I'd give you half my kingdom. What do you want, my queen? And here's what she says, chapter 7, verse 3. The queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. And the king responds by saying, not only will I spare you and your people, but I will give you the authority to do it. Here is my signet ring. My authority goes with you. Send word to all the land that the Jews will not be annihilated, that they are a faithful part of my kingdom. And they are under my protection through your authority. You see, sometimes 
We can't see the, the lines that trace all the way through history of how things are connected together. And we arrive at those linchpin moments where choices need to be made. And we wonder, how did I get here? And why is this happening in this space and time? But it doesn't matter if you could see the whole line. All that matters is in that moment, will you be faithful? And will you be patient? Leaving room for the word of God and the work of God to take place in your life and in the world around you. Esther is a beautiful example of how to faithfully and patiently execute those choices all along the way. Can we walk in that as well? Knowing that if we are faithful in these little things, then God is working behind the scenes to establish a beautiful miracle of salvation just as he did from Esther to Jesus to you for the world. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, what an extraordinary gift it is to gather around your word. Lord, we love your word. What a, what a powerful witness it is for us that, that we could sit with it and allow it to inform our lives and to help us follow you faithfully as well. Lord, we pray that you would uh, be glorified uh, through uh, the reflection uh, that we have in our lives of this grand invitation to be faithful and patient in our choices. Lord, as we continue in worship and we enter into this time of offering, I pray that you would bless the gifts and the givers. Lord, that all that is given would be to your glory, honor, and praise. And Lord, that, that each of us that, that we give would, would experience the joy that we have in giving something away, knowing that it will go to your good and faithful work. Lord, we thank you and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.